Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, how amazing it is to, to think that we will be there when our name is called on that precious role. How incredible to think that we'll be able to say, present, here. And God, we praise you that until that just unfathomably um, just uh, amazing time that, that we get to be sanctified uh, by your word and continue to uh, strive for holiness and Christ-likeness and that we continue to be transformed and renewed by your Holy Spirit as your word is preached and taught, proclaimed. So I pray, God, that this time would be edifying and encouraging and beneficial towards that end once again, that you would receive all the glory for it. Thank you so much, God, for, for Christ, the living word, and for the written word we're about to get into. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. We have been in the Gospel of Mark for the last while. And in the middle of Mark chapter 12 now, and as you are turning there, I want to share with you that Benjamin Franklin, at the tender young age of 22, penned the words of his own epitaph. And he lived to the age of 84, by the way. And uh, this is what he wrote. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. So it's quite interesting that the young 22-year-old Benjamin Franklin assumed after he died would wake up in the presence of the author, as he put it, in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended, resurrected, as it were. Most of us are aware of the extraordinary genius and the unique brilliance of this man, Benjamin Franklin. We know just a little bit of history. I'm not going to get into that, but in the realms of science, of inventions, of discoveries, of politics, of philosophy, of leadership, even ethics and morals, there's a lot to be admired of a man who contributed and accomplished so much in each of these fields. And yet, what a tragedy, which we see over and over in history, that even the wisest of the wise and the brightest of lights can be spiritually deceived and in the dark. Listen, here's what Franklin wrote as he was in a very sickened state just six weeks before his death at the age of 84. He wrote this, quote, Here is my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal, and will be treated with justice in another life 
respecting its conduct in this life. But then he sounds pretty good so far, right? But as for Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and religion as he left them to us is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I have some doubts as to his divinity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and I think it is needless to busy myself with it now, where I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. End quote. Meaning, he's going to find out very soon, right? Well, unless Franklin had a change of heart and mind about the Lord Jesus in those few weeks before his death, his questioning about the, the person of Christ, the deity of Christ, would indicate a tragic mistake taken to the grave, okay? a mistake of eternal proportions. He may have hoped as a 22-year-old at death to be resurrected and receive a, a new and more perfect edition, right? his body, corrected and amended by the author, God. But the hope and resurrection, the hope of heaven and resurrection is not possible for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. And this is what Paul says in Acts 4, verse 12, right? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In our text today, we're going to meet a group of men in Jesus' time who were gravely mistaken about the afterlife, okay, about resurrection. These influential religious men were part of a group called the Sadducees. Okay, the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in any resurrection, which is why, can you finish it? <laughs> My family said, don't do it, Dad, don't do it. I'll let you do it. Okay. Um, but these men were greatly mistaken about the reality of the resurrection and about what the resurrection was going to be like. And um, interestingly, in our New Life in Christ class on, on Thursday, our last class, uh, these two very questions came up that have to do with uh, our text this morning uh, about, about marriage and the resurrection and about like recognizing people. And so that's part of what we're going to cover today. But our sermon title is Mistaken About Marriage and the Resurrection. And um, our text is Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. And so before I read the passage today, let me just submit to you the, the theme. Okay? The theme of this passage is that Christians should correctly understand and believe what the Bible teaches us about resurrection life and marriage in heaven. Okay? Christians, believers, we should correctly understand and believe what God's Word teaches us about resurrection life and marriage in heaven. And so um, let me read the passage for us, Mark 12, verses 18 and 20 to 27. And if you are able to, please stand with me once again as we respect God's Word. Mark 12, starting in verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. 
There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Please be seated. Just a very quick um, breakdown of the passage, just two main points here, um, or two just anchors to, to guide our, our time. Uh, the first one is verses 18 through 24, which I'm calling the ignorant absurdity. You, know, you don't have an insert today. Normally we have an insert and you have all this, but um, the ignorant absurdity is verses 18 to 24. And so, once again, we're introduced to these men called the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And just a little information on them. They were a small sect of the priestly families, wealthy folks, okay, aristocrats with significant political and religious influence. They dominated the Sanhedrin, which we've been learning about the last couple of Sundays. They were the main controllers of the temple, so obviously they were not happy with what Jesus did just the other day as he cleanses the temple. Interestingly, and somewhat oddly to me, they considered only the Pentateuch, okay, the first five books, the books of Moses, right, the first five books of the Old Testament, as authoritative. Only those were authoritative to them. Okay, it's like someone today saying that only the, what Jesus said, right, the red letters in the, in the, in the, in the Gospels, those are the only things that I go by. Something like that. Okay, they considered the rest of the Old Testament scriptures as more commentary rather than God's authoritative word. They also rejected the oral tradition and the laws of the, the rabbis that the Pharisees, that other group, so emphasized in their teaching and their ministry. So in this sense, the Sadducees might be considered to be theological conservatives. That being the case, they did not believe in angels and demons. Acts 23, verse 8 helps us with that. They were certainly not looking for a Messiah king in the line of David. And they did not believe in the soul's immortality. Okay? Nor of, as Josephus writes, the punishments and rewards in Hades. They didn't believe in any of that. So they rejected the possibility of future bodily resurrection. Okay. Again, Josephus writes in his Antiquities, quote, The doctrine of the Sadducees is this, souls die with bodies, end quote. By the way, uh, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed um, in A.D. 70, which is like around 
roughly 40 years after Jesus is crucified and resurrected. Um, the Sadducees' power and political influence came to an abrupt end, and they pretty much vanished from history. So here's yet another group that comes, okay? everyone getting their shot at Jesus, right? And his hour did arrive. It's arriving. It's here for him to suffer and die. But part of the glory of this Passion Week, I want to say, is we get to see his brilliant retorts, okay? his blunt rebukes, and his mind-boggling revelation of Scripture as the cross gets closer and closer. We're a few days out now, right? We receive these amazing teachings from the Lord through his stunning replies to these men who really should know better. Okay, the Sadducees, another group who are opposite the Pharisees, they're no friends of the Herodians, but all of them are uniting together with each other in their violent hatred of Jesus. So what is this group trying to do here? Well, they say in verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife, leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So they start out, well, they're referring to Deuteronomy 25. It's the law of Leverite marriage. It makes sense as they did consider the, the Torah, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, as authoritative. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 6 says this, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man, to a Gentile. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, fine and well. Okay, apparently, their question is based on this instruction that God, through Moses, gives to Israel. Its purpose being to produce an heir to the property and inheritance of the deceased husband, the deceased man. Okay, but now, here comes the absurdity. Okay, verses 20 to 23. And I read it already, but again, it says, There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died leaving no children. Second one, same thing. Third one, likewise, all the way on to the seven. Last of all, the woman died also in the resurrection when they rise again. Which one's wife will she be? For she, all seven had married her. So basically they're asking, what if a woman is widowed seven times and each time they're unsuccessful in producing heirs for any of their brothers? If there really is such a thing as resurrection, whose wife would she become in the next life? You know, their, their scenario here is most likely a made-up story and not a real-life story. It seems to be that it's a, it's a hypothetical made-up one, uh, a resurrection riddle, so to speak, one that probably confounded and vexed terribly you know, the Pharisees and others who did believe in resurrection. Okay, so we see what they're doing here. Their purpose in bringing this absurd question was basically to ridicule Jesus and maybe even others who believed in the resurrection. Okay, most Jews did. And it's to cause him to look bad by stumping him publicly, okay, challenging his knowledge and his beliefs. Okay, think about it. There doesn't really seem to be a reasonable answer to this question because Moses' law clearly forbids adultery and polygamy. But if there is such a, a ridiculous thing as bodily resurrection, it seems that there's no choice. 
Okay, she must be married to them all. Or if she's only married to the, maybe the first husband, where does that leave the six other ones? Okay, without wives in this so-called afterlife, and all for, because they followed God's law in, in Deuteronomy? It, it seems like an unanswerable question meant to frustrate or mock or scoff at one's belief. Along the lines of unbelievers today who ask things like this, can God create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? Basically, it's it's mocking, it's it's being skeptical of those who believe that there's a God who can do anything he wants, and yet also he's supposed to be all-powerful. Okay, So that's kind of what's going on here. Their purpose seems to be to cast doubt on someone who believes in such a thing as bodily resurrection, the afterlife, and to make Jesus look bad by confusing him or making him contradict himself in his answer, bringing his credibility into question. So in verse 24, Jesus says to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? In the parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew 20, verse 29, Matthew writes, But Jesus answered said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus pretty much calls their, their question and their scenario here an ignorant absurdity, which is why I made it this first point. Okay, in return, he asks them a question, pointing out that they are the ones who are mistaken. They're the ones who are wrong. And the reasons they're mistaken about resurrection and the nature of it and marriage in it is, is twofold, right? They don't understand. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the word of God. And number two, they do not understand or know the power of God. They are ignorant of both. Okay, so listen, knowing God's word is not the same as knowing the God of the word. Okay, so again, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the experts, the Sadducees, they knew some or they knew a lot of God's word, but it didn't mean that they actually knew God. Okay, if they actually knew and understood the scriptures, they would know God as the all-powerful one who could actually raise the dead to literal bodily resurrection. If they truly understood and knew and believed the scriptures, they would actually understand and know and believe in the almighty God himself. Instead, they foolishly ridicule the one who was part of the creation of the world and will be in charge of the recreation and resurrection and consummation of all things, the very one that they're talking to right now, Jesus himself. So before we get off this point, may I suggest, especially to those here who may be younger Christians or newer believers just coming to faith in Christ, because this kind of thing seems to be more of a potential temptation or tendency for newer believers. Okay, and the tendency is this. Trying to answer tough theological questions or even difficult practical questions that come up in the Christian life without yet studying or knowing or understanding God's word. Okay, I don't know if this has happened to anyone else here, but me, for instance, when I first got saved, uh, the whole evolution versus creation thing, right? I was a, you know, a, a pagan unbeliever before God rescued me and, and saved me by the power of the gospel. But I had to now consider what did I believe in about creation? 
So as a new believer, I start reading all these uh, Christian books or seemingly Christian books. Most, if not all of them, seem to try to accommodate the theory of evolution with the Bible, right? So days in Genesis 1 means ages, which means millions of years. The gap theory, Genesis 1, the first few verses there, all of that stuff. And so, you know, I went to a conference uh, in Pasadena, I remember, and um, they, were, they were teaching that. I was like, oh, that, that makes sense. That lines up with what I believe. And so, wow, the Bible loves science and, and all this stuff. So this was without me yet actually studying the scriptures for myself and, and accepting that there's some kind of, uh, you know, uh, just union with what the world teaches and atheists teach and what Darwin taught with what the Bible teaches. And so I want to just suggest that maybe some of us here as we are growing in our faith, um, whether it's a theological question like that or it's a, a practical matters of life and how to um, address things in, in our relationships or just uh, things that come up in, in our lives, that we would go to the scriptures and understand and know the scriptures and believe in the power of God. Okay? That's, that what we, that's what we must do as Christians. We must grow in our understanding of God's word. And um, to this, this topic, this subject, and everything else. Okay? So that's the, the first thing. Jesus answers, and I'm calling it the insightful answer in verses 25 to 28. And as he answers them, uh, we see that the Sadducees, again, they make two major mistakes in their ignorant absurdity. Okay? And uh, the two mistakes are about the nature of resurrection life, number one. And number two, the reality of resurrection life. Okay? The nature of resurrection life and the reality of resurrection life. So let's, let's look at that for a moment. The first one, the nature of resurrection life. They got this wrong, right? Jesus says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Matthew 22, verse 30, the parallel passage says the same thing virtually. But in Luke 20, which is the other gospel that mentions this incident, Luke 20, verse 34 and 36. Listen to this. Jesus says, as Luke records, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. See, Jesus is saying that life in heaven is not going to be exactly the same as life here on earth. The, the afterlife is, is not a mere continuation of things that are happening here in this life. The resurrected life is not a, a prolonged earthly life, but rather it's life in an entirely new dimension. Earthly conditions and customs and conventions are going to yield to heavenly ones. Where Jesus says, once again, they neither marry, okay, so they do not contract marriages as husbands, nor are they given in marriage. Okay, they're not given as an act of their parents, as wives. Okay, in other words, there won't be any weddings in heaven, okay, no marriages happening in heaven, but you're like angels in heaven. So in, in the resurrection, believers will be like angels. So notice, Jesus doesn't say that 
we become angels in heaven. We are angels in heaven. That's not what he's saying. He says, like angels. Like angels. So we don't become angels in heaven and get our wings and start flying around for all eternity, right? That's, that's Hollywood's picture. But uh, sometimes we can get affected by those things, right? But he's saying that unlike here on earth, where we do get married, in heaven we are like angels in that they are spiritual, eternal beings. Again, Luke 20 elaborates just a bit. For they, okay, resurrected believers, cannot even die anymore because they're like angels, sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Okay, so what's clear is that resurrected believers in heaven will not enter into marriages as we know them in this life. Producing offspring to solve inheritance issues when a husband dies will no longer be necessary. Right? That's what was being addressed in Leverite marriage in Deuteronomy 25. Because like the angels, we're not going to die anymore. So when it says like the angels there, let's just understand that, right? Deathless, sinless, sexless, okay? In the sense of needing to procreate. There's no need to procreate in heaven. Okay? We're eternal and glorified. Okay? But unlike the angels, we will have resurrected physical bodies that are somehow like our Lord's. And that is towards the end, right? So the nature of resurrection life is, is not a simple continuation of this life with all its relationships the, the same. Okay, marriage, family relationships it will not be exactly the same in heaven. So let me just address really quickly the two big questions that come up, right? Because some of us are, are asking that right now. Um, will we be married in heaven? Okay, those who are married here on earth, when we get to are we going to be married... Um, when we get there. I would say it seems implied at least from this text that our marriage relationships here on earth are not going to be the same in the resurrection. Again, there won't be need for marriage partners to complement and complete each other as husbands and wives do in this life. Why is that? Because in heaven, saints will be glorified, believers are going to be glorified, which means all our relationships with, with everyone will be nothing but perfected love and pure joy. And that starts with our relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I agree with what one pastor, Alan Carr, wrote. He said, quote, While the relationship of marriage is a wonderful and God-ordained institution, it is an absolutely earthly institution. Marriage was designed for companionship, Genesis 2.18, for procreation, Genesis 1.22, and for the fulfillment of legitimate sexual needs, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. When we get to heaven, we will be like the angels, only in the sense that we will be spiritual beings who will have no need for the physical necessities of this earthly life. There will be no exclusive physical relationships like there are here, because in heaven, everyone will be perfectly and intimately related to everyone else, including God, end quote. That being said, the other related question is, will we recognize each other in heaven? Whether it's our spouses or our family members or church family, fellow believers. And um, we aren't necessarily told the answer to this question in detail from the Bible. But it seems apparent that we will know and recognize one another. And just a few brief examples being 1 Samuel 28, King Saul recognized Samuel 
Okay, when God allowed the witch of Endor to summon him from the realm of the dead, which was, by the way, an extremely exceptional and unique circumstance. And this is just kind of indirect examples. Second Samuel verse 12, when David's baby died, okay, David knew that he'd go and see him in heaven, assuming that he would recognize him, even though he was just an infant. In Luke 16, the rich man that Jesus described in the afterlife was aware of his family relationships. In Mark 9, the Mount of Transfiguration, somehow Elijah and Moses were recognizable. So being that we will be perfectly glorified beings, it seems safe to say that we will know our current spouses and everyone else, actually, infinitely better than we know them now. And so it almost goes without saying that we will recognize each other when we get there. Um, let me just add a, a brief footnote before we get to some application, okay? And hopefully I'm not going beyond Scripture when I submit these things. Um, but let me, let me say the, the Bible does not say a, a couple things. It does not say a couple things. It doesn't say that gender distinctions will disappear, okay? Um, I think Jesus is still the God-man right now. He's not the God-woman so I'm going to be me, and you're going to be you. There is some continuity in that regard as far as our earthly just life and our heavenly life. So the Bible does not say that gender distinctions are going to disappear. And the second thing is that um, I don't believe the Bible is saying that none of our relationships and uh, the conditions of our earthly life are going to be remembered or relevant. It's not like we're going to forget everything that happened here uh, on earth. Some people teach this kind of stuff. So I think who we are and what we've done, the relationships that we've had and that we've worked on and built up and borne fruit from, all of this is going to have some kind of relevance in heaven. And I don't know how or um, what uh, exactly, and I don't want to go beyond the word, but um, some people teach uh, those kinds of things. And I just want to say that I think we're told too little in the word to insist that either of those things are, are true, Okay. So a uh, quick application here before we get to the second part. Um, and maybe perhaps uh, some of us believers, okay, whether newer in the faith or, or seasoned in the faith, young or old, we might tend to make the mistake of not trusting fully in God's power or promises. Okay, and this is what Jesus said to the Sadducees, right? You, you don't know. You don't understand. You don't understand the word. You don't understand the power of God. So I want to ask, do we, Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do we believe that the glory of heaven and the resurrection will be a relationship of connection with God and Jesus that surpasses anything else, including our current marriage and family relationships? You can check out Revelation 22 sometime just to think about that. I think we should think rightly and believe this, Do we really believe that the enjoyment and satisfactions of heaven will far surpass, okay? When I say far surpass, I mean just like blow out of the water, okay? Any enjoyments and satisfactions that we can know here on earth, I, I don't think we should be mistaken about this. We should not be mistaken, okay? Because it's true. Psalm 16, verse 11, as Pastor Bill read for us earlier, in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand there are pleasures 
forever. Jonathan Edwards, great Puritan, said this, quote, In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion, such a motion, as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here, end quote. Once again, I don't want to go beyond Scripture, but um, fullness of joy, pleasures forever and ever and ever. Faith Bible Church family, we can't know for certain what resurrection life and glory is going to be exactly like, but we can know without a doubt that no one is going to be disappointed when we get there. No one is going to be disappointed with the arrangements that God has made his power and his promises. May we not doubt that. His power and promise to satisfy, to be all that we would want and desire and love, that in the resurrection, in himself, is that fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Of course, the Sadducees were greatly mistaken about all this. They didn't know or understand about the nature of the resurrection, And it's because they didn't even believe the resurrection itself, the reality of the resurrection, the fact of it. And so that's what Jesus corrects them on. And this is our last couple of verses. He corrects them. He says, verse 26 and 27, But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? And he goes on, right? So let me explain quickly that the Old Testament does speak about the resurrection, Okay, the, the reality of it. Not as clearly as the New Testament does, but nonetheless, once again, Psalm 16, it's part of the reason why that was our scripture reading this morning. Verses 9 and 10 is quite clear. David writes, and this is interpreted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, he writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So these are expressions of David anticipating himself but applied to the greater David in a messianic way, okay, to Christ. But this applies to believers. Daniel 12, verse 2. Daniel writes, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Right? So resurrection for for believers and non-believers, some to life and some to judgment. Job 19, verses 25 to 27, says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. Pretty strong indications of and arguments for resurrection life. Isaiah 26 verse 19 is uh, the last one and I'll, I'll, I'll read this one as well. Isaiah 26 19. The prophet Isaiah writes, your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy. 
For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And so, um, you know, the New Testament, I'm not going to go into any New Testament verses, but um, Hebrews 11, okay, verse 19, it's speaking of someone from the Old Testament. It's referring to the Old Testament. Abraham, his belief in resurrection. And uh, it says there that Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type, right? Speaking of Abraham and Isaac. So as strong as these passages indicate the reality of resurrection, did you notice that Jesus doesn't mention any of those? Hey, I love that because remember who he's talking to, right? The Sadducees who regard only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, to be authoritative. All those verses, all those references I gave to you are outside of the Pentateuch. So Jesus says to them, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, right? Which they supposedly do believe, right? He's going to take them to school about the reality of the resurrection from their own source, And he goes to a most well-known passage, Exodus chapter 3, involving the burning bush, when God appears to Moses, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what we want to understand here is God said in that passage, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? Notice that's very personal to each of those patriarchs, right? Each of those fathers. Um, But I am, not I was, back then, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am, it was present tense, when God spoke to Moses, meaning that he is, God is. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we need to remember, when God is speaking to Moses, okay, this is like 1400 B.C., right? In Exodus 3, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been physically dead, long dead, a several hundred years dead. So Jesus' point is, God telling, speaking to Moses, saying, he is the God of the living. Okay, in other words, even though Abraham, Isaac, Jacob have been physically dead for all these centuries, okay, because they are resurrected spirits, they are living, they're not dead. God is the God of the living and so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, are resurrected spirits. They're alive. They're living. They're, they're in heaven with God at the time of God speaking to Moses. Okay? I hope that's clear. There's a whole, like, kind of logical thing that we can go through, but I'm not going to take the time for that. But hopefully we understand what is, is being said here to these ridiculing Sadducees about the fact and reality of the resurrection and Jesus bringing it out from Exodus, the Pentateuch. So as we wrap up here and um, make our way towards the communion table, Jesus ends by saying to the Sadducees, you are greatly mistaken about these things. This is similar to the way he started talking. He says, you are mistaken, but here he says, you are greatly mistaken. You are quite wrong, even, even dead wrong. You are much deceived. And this is no small error of theirs. 
And what do some other religions say about the afterlife who are also mistaken? Okay, per David Thompson's summary here, okay, Mormons say you go to one of three kingdoms based on Joseph Smith's approval. Hindus say you are reincarnated based on your works. Muslims, right, Islam. So you die and go to a, a pleasure palace. If you die a martyr, you get 72 virgins. Indians, you need to be buried with your bow and arrows. So you go to your happy and holy hunting ground. Egyptians, you're buried with things so you can take them with you into eternity. Some Greeks, okay, they believe that you should be buried with a coin in your mouth so you can pay that fee to cross into the, the land of the afterlife. Okay, others don't know, don't care. Okay, others still, professing Christians even, well, we don't have to agree on this small point of doctrine as the resurrection. Hey, we're brothers in Christ anyway. Hey, the resurrection is not a, a small point of doctrine. It's an incredibly critical, important point of doctrine. May none of us here this morning be mistaken about the resurrection okay, or even have misplaced desires about marriage or any aspect of the resurrection life in heaven. Once again, may we believe in the promise and powers of God that in heaven, he's going to take care of it all. He's going to work it all out. It's going to be way, way, way better, way beyond what we can imagine or ask or think right now in our still sin-stained state. Let us remember 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, which Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's, let's remember that Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved with all the, the delight and blessing and pleasure and forgiveness and salvation and eternity that's promised there. Let us remember Romans 6, verse 4, Paul writing again, saying, Therefore, we believers have been buried with him, with Christ, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Christians, we need to correctly understand and believe what the Bible teaches us about resurrection life and marriage in heaven. Let us continue to learn and grow and understand God's word and God's power.